So I actually, in my notes, have written a multitude of failures, and I just compiled a list of times. I don't know if I failed or circumstances failed me or my brain failed, but there is an, an element of failure, and maybe this was, again, more an exploration of how failure works. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's the world, sometimes it's circumstance. Uh, you got to take responsibility for what goes on in your life, but you can also see how things are sometimes out of your control. And so I thought I would explore that a little bit by going through, basically, laugh with me by laughing at me with me is what we're trying to get to. So like everyone who finishes university, and I was particularly bad at education, <laughs> uh, I was trying to, trying to get a job. And so I was just like, hey, throwing it out there. Uh, let's try to get any job we can. We just want to get started in life. And I thought, oh, what, what's a noble thing I can do? Let's, let's try to make myself the best self I can be. And I also maybe had taken on too much information from movies like that things work out really nicely in the end, which I found in real life, they don't really work that way. Like, I've, again, I've had a very blessed life, but at the same time, if you, what my aspirations in my reality, there is a significant gap there. So I was trying to get a job right out of university and I didn't really know how things worked. One of the things, university, high school, all education says it's supposed to prepare you for the real world, it's supposed to prepare you for stuff. It doesn't even come close. Like, I think middle school, elementary school should have a course on how to study. That's been a big sticking point for me for the last little while it's been years now, while I think about education, is that education never teaches students how to study. They say, here's math, take this math and go study it. They don't tell you how to study it. Should I just copy it? Should I do like other activities? Should I make up my own formulas? Should I just look at it? Should I put it under my pillow and use osmosis? They don't explore anything. Because again, I think every kid's probably a little different. And so what's successful for one kid won't be successful for another. But you got to try the different ways to be successful and then find what works for you. So then by the time you get to junior high school, high school, you know what kind of studying works for you. Therefore, you can study more effectively. When you're going to the end of university and you're trying to get jobs and stuff, they got to tell you how jobs work. And that, I think, was the maybe the first failure, was school has failed me miserably. So I said, you know, again, maybe being a little uh, aspirational in my thinking, I decided to apply to CSIS. Now, CSIS is C-S-I-S. It is the Canadian... Oh, I forget what it stands for. Canadian... It's not secret. I'm going to have to look it up. Let me do that real quick. What does CSIS stand for? Ah, there you go. Okay. It's Canadian Security Intelligence Services. So this is essentially Canada's CIA or Canada, because the FBI is national and the CIA is international. Canada has the RCMP is national and CSIS is international. So they deal with international crime. Now, they're spies. This is Canada's version of spies. And I just thought, oh, I'll write a nice letter and a, and a resume, which had like, I sold dog food for six years on it, and send that into the CSIS head office, because they do have an office, which actually is in itself kind of weird. And uh, I didn't do any research. I didn't think of what requirements they had. I didn't actually apply for a specific job. I just sent a letter to 
the Canadian Security Intelligence Services and said, I'd like to work for you. Now, with a little life experience, I see why this wouldn't have worked out. Because I don't think CSIS uh, just accepts applications. I think they recruit. I think they're going to go to the military. They're going to go to police agencies. They're going to go to specific things. Uh, again, uh, perhaps banks, they need like forensic accountants and whatnot. They're going to find the people who fit the roles they need, and then they're going to recruit them. They're not just going to take applications off the street. It's why you've never uh, looked on Craigslist and seen an ad for CSIS uh, agents. <laughs> now, I didn't think, I was realistic enough to think, I'm not about to be a spy. I'm not going to be like James, the Canadian version of James Bond going around the world uh, shooting things and solving crimes. I thought I will probably be doing a lot of data input. Maybe I'll get good enough at that that I'll actually, you know, get a job as maybe as a data analyst or compiling other people's information and, and doing stuff for them. I was pretty, I'm not even going to say good. I was pretty good with computers. Uh, I was adequate. I was better than average at the time. That's certainly now that's not the case because computers have come so far. But at the time, I could have done some Excel sheets that maybe other people couldn't do. Uh, I could put some things together that other people do. So I, I sent them a resume and a, let, and a cover letter, and I actually got a response, which I now in my head think, this was very nice of them to not make fun of me. Uh, and then the, the response was a very short letter, and it just said, I don't know where you would fit in the organization. And it was a very nice way of saying, like, what the fuck are you talking about, you moron kid? But at the same time, it was respectful, and it, maybe he even took a moment to recognize, like, this kid wants to do something bigger, but just doesn't know how, which I think was the case. I wanted to do something good in with myself in the world. I just didn't know how to do it yet. <laughs> Anyways, so I did not get a job at Canadian Security Intelligence Services. And that, that's, that's the first step uh, to how I live my life now, is not a spy. So then I'm still looking for a job. This is the same era. again. So I'm still in a situation. So now if I was going to get a job, I'd do a lot of research. I would find out stuff. I would make sure I know what I'm talking about before I made any sort of application. I've done internal interviews within the company I work in now, and I did as much research as I could to get as much like background as I could so that I could present myself very well. Back then, I was just so ready to get a dream job out the gate that I just thought any, my brain was making things look good that were not good for me. So there was a company and I saw an ad and this was back then, because this is when I'm in my 20s. So the internet is functional and it exists, but it's not common. So most jobs, even at us, you know, uh, very technologically advanced companies, you would still send in a physical resume. So you'd send it in the mail. So I saw an ad, uh, I think it was on the internet. It must've been on the internet. And it was looking for a script writer. Now, I am a pithy guy. Like, I drizzle sarcasm. Uh, I am artistic. And I've written lots of stuff. By that time, I'd actually written a full novel. We'll get to how that failed in a minute. Uh, I got quips. I could do it. I can write scripts. I could write scripts that dazzle people. I could even do drama. I could do serious stuff. Comedy is the hard thing to write. Uh, drama is easy, comparatively speaking. So I got this. So what I did is I took some scripts that I had made for a mini internet show I had at the time. You can see that this aspect of my life has not changed much. 
and I compiled those scripts and I, I wrote, I, I made a list of other things I've written and amazing scripts I've put together. And then I wrote an original script for them and I made this package. And I thought, man, this is a pretty good package. This has like sketch comedy, has a little drama, has some, some, some novel things to it, like, like, uh, like long form literature style writing. It shows that I am very diverse in my abilities. They're going to be creaming their pants to get a hold of me. This is going to be awesome. And so I was putting the envelope, the package, into the uh, mailbox. And as my hand released, I realized, and you hear that slam, you know when it slams? And that's, that's the note that you'll never get this back. Poof, this is gone forever. Poof, this is now in the world. Poof, this is in the hands of the person who you sent it to. Poof. As I released my hands and heard that little poof, I realized it's a computer company. They're looking for computer scripts, not comedy scripts or drama scripts or any kind of script. It's not like a sketch show. They had a, the reason I, I kind of conflated these things in my mind, this was sort of uh, the height of Flash and Flash cartoons were huge. And my mind had put together that they needed someone to write scripts to make their Flash cartoons. But what they actually probably wanted was Flash scripts like if A then B, uh, go to 10, all those kind of you know basic things. They wanted Python scripts. They wanted SQL scripts. They wanted PHP scripts. They wanted uh, database access scripts. They wanted a script writer to write computer scripts. And as I let go of that letter, I I, in that moment, I realized this is wrong. I have not done, I've not interpreted this the way it is in reality. And I've really messed up. And I couldn't get it back. Now, thankfully, the company never contacted me because I now felt enough sort of self-humiliation, self-embarrassment at how stupid I was that I was now dreading the call where they would ask me to come in and actually talk to them about scripts. And I was part of my brain was going, they're, they're computer guys. What they're going to do is see this guy who's so dumb and has made this huge mistake. They'll bring him in, they'll sit down and talk to him and it'll just be like this office joke. And I will, and I, you know, I would have gone in because I was out of university. I was in debt. I needed a job. I would have gone in for the interview knowing that I had applied for a job that didn't exist, knowing that I was doing a thing that they were just laughing at. I still would have taken the shot and that would have just added to the embarrassment. It would have been insane. I am thankful that they never contacted me. It is painful. <laughs> I actually have a friend who ended up working at that company for a short time and he said that it never came up. So they didn't sit around the office talking about that one guy who applied for a script writer <laughs> doing scripts, uh, but not actually computer scripts. But I mentioned in that story, my first novel. Now, I actually have a tattoo of the title of the novel on my back. And there's a secondary story. I got it on my lower left of my back. It is inches away from being a tramp stamp because I got it on my lower back before tramp stamps were a thing. And then about two years later, girls all started getting like flurries or flashes or, or like barbed wire and shit uh, across the bottom of their back above their butt. And actually, all these slutty girls ruined my tattoo. <laughs> but anyways, I wrote a book. This was in university. I was actually very proud of it. The basic premise of the plot 
there was actually two main characters. There was a police officer. And the police officer had this uncanny ability to always hit what he shot at. So one day he encountered a, ma- a rapist who was raping a girl and he shot him. But he could sell that. I did just explain tramp stamps uh, because I needed to give context to there was a time before tramp stamps existed. Because before tramp stamps existed, if you got a tattoo on your back, on let's say your lower back, like I did... There was no negative connotation to it. There was no association with the tramp aspect. So I felt it was necessary to make sure everyone understood. I know I've had people say it. Like I say, I got this, this tattoo on my back. And I've had people go, do you not know what a tramp stamp is? Not realizing there was a time before tramp stamps. There was a time before that was a thing. So I have a tattoo on my shoulder. And I thought for balance, lower on the other side of the body on my back would be like a nice balancing feature of the tattoos that's why i got it there and then honestly like two years later tramp stamps got wicked popular weird one i saw no whatever i'm not talking about tattoos ignace just put in the chat in the 1800s yes yes in the 1800s that is when i got my tattoo and in the 1850s tramp stamps became popular uh, that's why you'll see so many cowboys talk about tramps they're not actually talking about homeless people they're talking about uh, women with tramp stamps so that's uh, just a little more in-depth knowledge uh, for Cowboy Lore from C. McBee Podcast and Chunk with Beef Chest. Anyways, now I've, you've ruined the plot of my book. <laughs> it was a shitty book anyways. I wrote it when I was in my early 20s, so you know it wasn't... I think it was, again, conceptually good. I think, uh, again, I just need to work on... Um, uh, I needed to, uh, to, to practice writing more. But the idea was that there was this guy and he, if he shot something and he killed it, he knew inside. So as a police officer, he could say, you know, I shot at him and I hit him and he died. And that's just circumstances. Whereas deep down inside, he knew he shot him on purpose because he had essentially perfect aim. The secondary main character was a ghost and the ghost had no context for what being a ghost was. So again, all media we've ever heard is that ghosts remain because... You have something left unfinished. But the ghost himself didn't know what he had left unfinished. So he was going to try to find out what he needed to finish so that he could move on, not even knowing if there was a place to move on to. It was all conceptual. So he essentially tries to help the cop uh, with some issues and solve a crime and whatnot. Uh, it's, it's a weird buddy cop thing, but also they both have these like really deep-seated issues, which was supposed to be the heavy part. Anyways, I think con- conceptually quite a good book. Uh, I wasn't ready to write something that high, highfalutin yet. So uh, I decided I'm going to send But again, I'm still in the stage of my mind where if I just do it and I, I do the thing, it's going to be successful because I'm young and stupid and I don't know how things work. So I sent this book. Now, at the time, you had to send a sample of the book with a cover letter with a stamped self-addressed stamped envelope in it with a postcard that said whether you wanted your manuscript back or not. And I sent it to every publisher in North America. And then the rejection started coming because every one of those self-addressed stamped envelopes came back to me and every single one of them came back with a rejection. And you want to know what rejection feels like. You get to the point where every single day for weeks and weeks and weeks there's a letter for you and in that letter is something saying that the thing you spent 
a year, two years working on. It is not good enough for anyone else to ever see. Thank you for your time. Goodbye now. Um, and of course it's not. Now again, with the, the, the benefit of years of experience and stuff, I know that it wasn't very good and it would take years of editing and stuff. I did have one publisher say, this is interesting. We'd be interested in looking at your next project. But that next project never came about in a realistic amount of time. I did uh, intern after university. I did an internship at a publishing company that was a um, only did poetry. So they only did poetry. And we got dozens and dozens of manuscripts every day. And it was hardly any of it was poetry. And the guy who ran the publishing company said, like, Peter, here's a good job for you. I want you to sit down and write the rejection letters for these. Now, it's basically a form letter, but he's like, if you can put in something encouraging and positive, that's really nice. And me having had the similar experience of being rejected by every single publisher in North America, I had sympathy for these wannabe writers. The thing is, I read some of the worst trash ever, and there's one that sticks out to my mind and my memory. And it was like a pre Fifty Shades of Grey concept. It was a it was a BDSM kind of thing. The only bit I remember now is the the dominant man and the submissive woman meet in a grocery store and he takes her hand and they're in the frozen food section. And that's already funny if I'm being honest. And he takes her hand, he puts it on a frozen turkey and it oh, he holds it there against the turkey for an extended time until her hand goes numb. And it's so cold it starts to hurt. And I was just pissing myself laughing the whole time because just the idea of holding a frozen turkey as being sexually stimulating anyway was just a bit much. I guess if you're horny enough, it probably worked. I mean, that guy probably, the guy wrote it, he probably was, uh, he was probably into that kind of stuff. Rao says, damn, I wish I finished writing novels. It is hard. I mean, that's it. I think everyone has the ability to start. It's the getting through the middle and finishing. So last six months ago, I wrote and recorded Montana El Diablo. Uh, if you go to montanaeldiablo.com, it is a choose your own adventure. And that took me a year to write. And then I got sick and was in the hospital. And then I got out and I was working on it really hard. And then I got COVID. And then I decided I'm just going to finish it. So I don't think it's very strong. I think it's a really good first effort. I'm working on the concept and stuff for a second choose your own adventure book. Uh, but I really enjoyed making it. And I think that made a huge difference. Right now, what I'm doing is taking the first Montana El Diablo story. I've had some AI transcribe it from voice to text. I'm going to go through and fix it and add stuff and then actually self-publish it on Amazon. Yes, conceptualizing and starting is easy. And that's actually where everyone falls apart because everyone has like a notebook like this with like uh, probably a good idea in it. I'm not even going to shit on people. Most people's ideas are pretty solid. It's sitting down and again, a book it's a year-long process, probably minimum. And then do you have the where the will to sit down and edit? Do you have the will to cut half the shit you wrote because you realize it's not very good or rewrite it to make it better? Anyways, uh, working as an intern in a publishing company was very eye-opening and that was probably more leading me to understand how the world works and again, why I wasn't getting these jobs that I was completely doofing uh, in the first place. I did do, again, a very movie-like thing. I thought, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll take my novel that I've written. I'll leave it on the publisher's computer. And then one day he'll go, oh, 
what's this file I don't recognize? He'll click it open and start reading and go, ooh, it's a novel by that young intern, that young, very handsome and intern with lots of hair. Uh, oh my God, this is brilliant. I'm going to publish this. And then that would set off my, my, um, my, my publishing career. Uh, what actually happened is it was on his desktop. He just deleted it. He's like, I don't recognize that file. Boop, it was gone. So I've realized like the movie concept of how success works has no relationship to reality. And these lessons are the lessons that, uh, that get us through there. So that's a lot of rejection I experienced. <laughs> Very anticlimactic. Uh, Rao probably has not heard the story of the failure of my judo career. Which since we're here, I got one more story after this. This will probably be edited. But I have done judo my whole life since I was like 10 years old. So now I'm 50. I've been doing judo for 40 years. In university, I was on the university judo team. I really, really, really wanted to go to the Olympics. So I, I was like working really hard towards it. I was huge. So the 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 body you see now is nothing. Uh, I was like Thor at one time. So this is how sad you can get if you don't maintain that. I was doing judo four or five nights a week and going to the gym four or five mornings a week. And I was sleeping 10 hours a day. I basically won half the country. So I got this to like the West Canada part and I went to the nationals. And so I'm in the nationals, I'm fighting. And then uh, I have this moment and you know, and I, you know, this is, this is getting towards that peak, that moment. And I, my opponent grabs two of my fingers and pulls them backwards. Now I Probably So 50% of my mind thinks he did this on purpose to cheat. 50% of my mind thinks he did this as an accident. So he break, broke these two fingers. So my, this little finger, so I can close, you can close your finger all the way. Uh, this little finger doesn't. Like I can do that and try to push it. It does not close um, because it's just, it was broken. Now in the movie, uh, not the movie, but in a movie, uh, what happens is the hero gets injured. And then they maybe tape it up or they, they go off and they, they take a, a break and, and they use their, their heart, their spirit to will them to win. So they go back in and then they would using some special move or some, some so just the, the purity of their will to win and be better. They, they win the fight and they become the champion. I went out, two broken fingers, I taped them up to this third finger. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to be the hero that everyone's seen in every movie. They're going to make a movie about this guy right here. And I go in and I get my ass kicked because judo is not a thing you can fight with only one hand. You need two hands to do it. Got absolutely destroyed. Uh, Got up. You have to bow. So I bow and I walk off. And that's when the tears just started like coming down the side of my face because this is it. That's the end of my judo career right there. And that's reality. And again, it's not even sad. It's just that's what happens. That's real life. Like you get hurt. You don't become the champion. Uh, it ends your career. You try really hard. Sometimes that's not enough. And you can't just like, it doesn't suck. It's just real life. So sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it doesn't. So I, uh, that was the end of my judo career. I ended up though, but because I had that experience in judo, I came to Japan. And I have a really nice life in Japan. And I, I, I credit that to judo. So I think, yes, I lost this one thing that would have kept me in Canada, but I got this other thing that landed me in Japan where I'm actually really happy. 
So that's kind of the end point of what I would end up be getting to is like, how can I tell that one's actually better? If I'd become champion, would I, I maybe would have had a shitty job and been doing judo the rest of my life in Canada in a country where no one gives a shit about judo. Whereas now I've come to Japan and as a mediocre player, I get this, this status because I'm a foreign guy who does a Japanese thing and does it really well and, you know, really cares about it and wants to share it with other people. And they think I'm awesome. I have an immediate group of support group of friends. It's, it's great. I think it's actually, in a way, probably better. And it's my last story. So again, this is the same period, end of university, trying to find jobs. Uh, I go on and I find an online job recruiter. And they're actually based in California. So I go, okay, I'll call them up. So I'm calling them long distance. And I go, hi, I'm in Canada. Uh, the job market's tough. I'm looking for jobs. Uh, I was wondering if there's anything available in uh, your region because California is very up and coming. This was like the beginning and the very soon the end of the first uh, internet dot com bubble. I talked to them for uh, quite a long time, and then the recruiter said, "Come on down, and I'll get you working." And I, I, I was like, "Okay, I will arrange that." hang up, immediately start looking uh, for tickets to San Jose. How much do they cost? I talked to my parents because, again, I'm in debt. Uh, how can I afford to go and get a job? But if I can get a job in California working for a computer company, I will be making tons of money really soon. So this is worthwhile. Let's try it. So I borrow money. I get an airplane. I book a hotel, really cheap, 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 shitty, so cheap hotel. I'm in San Jose. Uh, I call up the recruiter and I go, yeah, so I'm here. And you can just hear this pause on the other end of the phone. They're like, what? I go, well, I'm here. You said, come on down and you get me working. So I came on down and I'm here now. Uh, what's the next step? And they, they go, oh, you know. And then they try to talk around it. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sakes. They were being euphemistic. They were not being honest or direct. They weren't being real. They were just saying this because they're essentially a salesperson. So they talked to me for a bit and they're like, oh, well, let me make some arrangements and I'll call you back. They didn't call me back. So I started calling the agency that they worked for and I got passed on to someone else who's like, come on in. But I'm like, I've now hit like deep, deep depression at this point. Come on in. We'll see what we can do. I come in. I mean, we haven't talked about visas or anything. So there's no way I can get a job in America. You can't just show up in America and get a job. You need a green card. You probably need the job before you can get all the shit I would need to get a job. So I'm now in a position where I'm in San Jose. I have spent more money than I have. I'm completely lost. I'm sitting in this shitty, shitty little hotel. And this notification comes out. And they call the hotel. They call the room. And it's there's been a chemical leak up the road at this big factory. And what they're saying is, please don't leave your room under any circumstances. So I can't even go like walk around. This is like San Jose. It's like sort of the bright, sunshiny California weather. No, I can't go outside. Go, you know, get a drink somewhere. No, you can't go outside. I have to stay indoors. I'm staying in this place. And at this time, again, this is late 90s, early 2000s. HBO exists, but it only plays two movies a day and it just plays them on loops. So I don't remember what the other movie was, but I watched Stuart Little four or five times in a 24-hour period because I could not leave my, my, my hotel room. I couldn't leave the place I was staying. I was in the depths of depression. 
I, I found it difficult to motivate myself to do anything. And I'm just watching Stuart Little over and over and over again. And it's talking about like, if you have big dreams, you'll like be successful. And all I'm doing is sitting in this shitty hotel room with chemicals apparently all around me, probably giving me cancer as I speak, being as unsuccessful as humanly possible. And I think Stuart Little lied to me. <laughs> 